Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! Let's start the afternoon off with where we ended yesterday. And that, of course, uh, Nelson George added something there at the top of the hour at 5. He was the uh, director, and he put together the Willie Mays documentary that we watched last night on HBO, Say Hey 24, um, which uh, aired at 9 o'clock last night for the first time on its first run. And uh, a lot of things to say about it. So I'm also, if you didn't see it, it's a fascinating. I mean, there's some good things to it. Uh, I'll give you the pros first. And then we'll get into some cons, and we'll get your calls in if you did see it, and we'll go a little historical look at Willie as we move it along. Number one, uh, from a professional, st- from a pro standpoint, it is really hard to believe how sharp Willie is at 91 years of age. I think that is the first thing I took away from it. Willie was involved in this. Uh, he made a big contribution. He understood the games. He knew about the words catch. I mean, it's not like he can't handle discussing his career. The Birmingham Black Barons back in the late. 40s. I mean, San Francisco, Alvin Dark, I mean, McCovey, uh, going back to the Mets. Uh, Willie was on top of it from a standpoint. Now, listen, I didn't use him in every segment, but Willie was definitely a contributor and a good one as far as this uh, 96-minute documentary was, and he added something. So I, I think that to hear Willie talk, a lot of Barry Bonds, which we'll get to, but to hear Willie break down uh, you know, his career in some capacity and his early days with his father and his mother being raised by his two aunts. I mean, it was very, very, very interesting. So that is uh, the first thing. Second positive is the historical ac- uh, accuracy, or at least the historical aspects of the of the Willie career, which includes Rickman Field in Birmingham, which is the oldest ballpark in the country, as we all know, minor league park, which they have rehabilitated recently due to some Willie proceeds from books and all that. Uh, but Rickman Field and talking to a couple of his ex-teammates one of who was a 96-year-old pitcher, still alive, and like Willie Sharp as hell, and about the you know the late 40s Birmingham Black Baron team and how good they were and playing in Birmingham and all that. And then, of course, the early days with the Giants, one playing in Trenton, then going to Minneapolis, and then, of course, being picked up by DeRocher and uh, having Leo as his father figure. It's a very, very good, at least in, say, the mid well, really the whole thing. It, it, it's a pretty good breakdown of, uh, not year-to-year per se, but of the Willie highlights in his career that give you a good breakdown. You know, you're going to get a good breakdown of the 54 catch against Cleveland. You're going to get a big breakdown on his first ever home run against Warren Spahn. Uh, you know, on deck with Bobby Thompson. Uh, you're going to get his first year in Seal Stadium, you know, basically following DiMaggio out there as the beloved son DiMaggio was and him going to San Francisco from New York. Again, 62 dark, the double down the right field line where, you know, Matty Lou didn't score, then McCovey hit the line drive to second base. And you're going to get a lot of that. You know, the 62 pennant race against the Dodgers where, you know, they came back and beat him in the third game, 7-4, down 4-2 in the ninth. Willie got a hit up the middle. And you're even going to get a little something with the uh, 73 World Series with the Mets. So when he was falling all over himself and falling down in the outfield against the Mets, which, you know, Reggie's in there, Mr. Jackson, our pal, who tried to say the tough sunfield and everything else, tried to make a few excuses. Bottom line is Willie was past his prime and it was not one of his, you know, people didn't want to see Willie falling all over himself in the outfield trying to 
and pick up a ground ball. But again, you know, that's that's neither here nor there per se, but it's in there from a documentary standpoint. So I think that is a big positive too. So, I mean, if you want, and you know, I mean, you get a good feel of Candlestick Park and how they built it, and you got a good feel of the wind, and you got a lot of highlights of his great catches, one of which, of course, which I remember live, was uh, April 11th, 1970. That's the great catch out in right center where he climbed the wire fence off the Bobby, Bobby Tolan base hit, the high fly ball game of the week on a Saturday afternoon. Willie made the great catch with ba- with Bobby looking at it. Uh, it's one of the wonderful players you're ever going to see, and uh, that's in there, and he was 39 years of age. And, of course, the basket catch, where that evolved from, playing stickball with the kids in New York City. I mean, oy, the Red Rooster, which Nelson George brought up to us yesterday. So there's a lot of things like that that are good in the documentary. So if you want to... Now, listen, for me, who grew up with Willie Mays, or at least the tail end of Willie Mays, you know, uh, from 68 on, for me, uh, you know, there's not a whole hell of a lot in there that I'm not going to know because, you know, I'm a giant fanatic. And although Willie wasn't my favorite, McCovey was, and then uh, Barry Bobby Bonds after that, I mean, you know, he was a giant. And, you know, and I knew Willie, and I saw Willie as a giant and everything else. So those are the positives. Um there are a couple of big negatives in this documentary, and the first one, it's, I don't know how you could disagree with it. I don't need 20 minutes on the Barry Bonds home run chase with Willie watching, you know, uh, from wherever he was watching, stadium, home, and chronicling every one of Barry's home runs, whether it's 500, whether it's 530, whether it's 600, whether it's 661, 700, 715, seven, I, I don't need it. And they spent 20 minutes on it at the conclusion of the documentary. And it's one thing to spend some time on it, you know, because obviously Barry's Willie's godson. But to spend a lot of time on it and not one time have any reference to steroids is a little rough to take. Because let's face it, Barry and I, listen, you're talking to me who saw all the games. Barry Bonds had as much chance to hit 762 home runs as I did if it wasn't for steroids. It was never going to happen. Never in a million years. Hall of Famer, great player. No argument. And, you know, he was going to hit 550, 570. He was going to hit that many home runs. But Barry Bonds was never, under any circumstances, hitting 762 home runs if he played the game straight. That's just, there's no argument. There's no debate, like Aaron did. There's no debate. There's none. And, you know, you spend 20 minutes, and Maverick Carter is an executive producer, and I love John Shea, but he's a consultant. John's a Willie. You know, he's he lo- he's a Willieite. I mean, he loves Will. So you are not going to get a journalistic look at, hold on now, Willie, Bobby, Barry hit all these home runs, and we're not going to at least bring up steroids? And I'd ask the question, Willie, how's it feel, the fact that Barry broke your record artificially? You're friends with Aaron. How did he feel about it? I know Aaron hated it. How did did he feel? So from that standpoint, it's going to drive you crazy. From that standpoint, it's going to drive you crazy. There are also a couple of historical inaccuracies in there, uh, one of which, you know, I don't know how Willie met Babe Ruth in 1948 in Long Island. Babe died in August of 48. Willie was 17, living in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, How Willie showed up in Long Island to meet Ruth, somebody's got to explain how that's possible. I mean, Ruth had cancer for a couple of years. I mean, uh, it was not like Ruth was hanging out, you know, at the... um, 
at uh, you know at, at Fresh Meadow Golf Course, and there's Willie. You know, that's not happening. So I don't know how that occurred in 1940. And, 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 and Ruth was dead on August 6th of 48. Unless Willie went to the funeral with the open casket at Yankee Stadium. I don't know how the hell Willie ever met Ruth. So that's number one, because there's a lot of Ruth in here. And number two, uh, this idea that somehow New York was flabbergasted and shocked beyond belief that the Giants left after the 57 season and what a shame that you know the poor giant fan lost to great willie uh, hold on now i'll take it easy i mean the giants and i looked the giants in 1957 they had they, you know what their attendance was 445,000 for the year divide that by 77 okay as horace stoneham used to say for everybody complaining the little kids out there how dare we bring willie and this franchise to san francisco you know i take them a little bit more seriously this is horace stoneham saying this i take them a little bit more seriously if i ever saw their fathers at the games i mean that's a little rough that's a little rough the idea the giants heyday for the giants was essentially 1900 to 1920 once ruth moved and they built Yankee Stadium and once Ruth became you know the thing in 1920 21 22 remember the first couple years of Ruth they played at the polo grounds they shared it they were they paid rent and once the Giants kicked them the hell out they thought hey we don't have to deal with Ruth anymore they built Yankee Stadium and the Yankees became the thing but the idea that the New York Giants in 1956 were a happening franchise in New York City with Willie out in the outfield is a bunch of freaking nonsense I mean you got to be fair and I'm a Giant fan and I read the Stoneham books. I read all their stuff. Uh, not true. They, they couldn't draw flies. The first off, the ballpark was thrown apart. It was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and Brooklyn had the Dodgers. That was their borough, and the Yankees are the Yankees. And the Giants were an afterthought. Nobody went. Nobody cared. So, I mean, the idea that somehow New York lost a living institution when Willie went to San Francisco is a bunch of garbage. That I, that I can't listen to. That that's not that's not fair. That I, and, I, and we all know how great Willie was, and people enjoyed watching him play, and there were giant fans, Dick Stockton included. But let's take it easy. It wasn't like they did a mass, uh, you know, there was a mass outcry, you know, of people crying at St. Patty's because the Giants were moving out to San Francisco. Take it easy. That I don't understand. And then finally, the big issue to me, and I've been through this theme a lot, and I don't want to make too big a deal about it because it sounds a little bit like sour grapes, and I'm not here to do this. And you're talking about a kid. Now, if it does sound like sour grapes, be fair. Because if you were on an August night in 1968 at the Philadelphia Hilton, and you were hanging out at that lobby, looking at all the kids getting autographs, one of those little kids is your now friendly little talk show host. Your Hall of Fame talk show host, right here. Because I was in that lobby for a week when the Giants were playing the Phillies in August of 68, getting every autograph from Mike McCormick to Bill Mumble and Kent to Willie McCovey that I could possibly find, and the one guy who wouldn't sign was Willie. Be fair. So I, if anybody has a right to say anything, it's me. John Shea was not out in the Philadelphia Hilton Hobby for six hours with a little piece of paper and a pen trying to get Willie to sign something. So keep that in mind. But the idea, and I've been down this theme a thousand times, I'll do it again. I can't judge a player, you know, from 1910 because of societal issues in the United States with segregation. I just can't do it. So, I mean, it's not, is it Ruth's fault? 
that Josh Gibson was not playing in the major leagues? Or was it Garrick's fault that Sacho Page was not pitching in Major League Baseball? So I can't, and that's what Nelson wanted to do yesterday. Well, anything before 1947 doesn't count. Well, hold on now. Well, I started 47, 54. There were just a, three or four African-Americans between 47 and 51. You had Campanella, you had Don Newcomb, you had Larry Doby, you had uh, Jackie, and you had Willie. That's it. So the influx of the great Latin American player and the great African-American player came a little later. 56 Robinson, 54 Aaron, 54 Clemente. That's when it came. Okay, It didn't come in 1948. It took him a long time to have everybody get involved here. So I can't go out there myself as a sports fan and a, and a talk show host and sit there and say, well, you know what? Williams's 406 doesn't count because it's 1941. Or DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak, I'm sorry, it doesn't count. Or Garrick's 2000 and whatever it might be games consecutively doesn't count. Or Tob, or Ty Cobb's, you know, 93 stolen bases and 4,200 career hits somehow doesn't count. What am I supposed to tell Tony Russo in 30 years, or maybe even less than that, when I meet him upstairs? Dad, I'm sorry that you went to go see DiMaggio and spent your paper money to sit in the center field bleachers, you know, because those games don't count because it's unfortunate, but there was segregation at the time and two different leagues, and, you know, uh, so we got to throw DiMaggio's records out. I can't do that. I can't do that as a sports fan. It's unfortunate, it's awful, and it's a joke that, you know, that took him this long. And Keensaw Mountain Landis, we go on and on. We can go spend an hour, days, breaking down the reasons and the whys. And yes, Cap Anson was a racist. I mean, if you want me to go do that, I do that. But I have to evaluate the players in the major leagues at the time. And the other side of the coin is, if you're going to kill Ruth's numbers, well, then I got to do the same thing for Satchel Page. You want me to do that? Josh Gibson. He had 550 home runs. You want me to do that? I can't. Cool Papa Bell. You want me to do that? You got to be fair. If we're going to say that the numbers don't count for Ruth because there were no African-Americans, well, although it's not Satchel Page's fault, he wasn't going up against Ty Cobb either. So if you want me to do that, I will. So uh, to me, that argument, I, I can't fight that argument. So I'm not going to. So I'm going to look at baseball from the beginning of time. And it's unfortunate that we had to wait to 1947, really later, before everybody got a chance. But I, 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 it's not like I'm going to, uh, again, DiMaggio hitting 56 consecutive games. That's got to count. I'm sorry. That's, that's 1941. That's got to count. But the overall theme of the doc, and again, I, you know, they want to, they, they, they bang it over your head is that they want you to walk out of there. And most of the people who watch that, you know, don't know who Ty Cobb is, but they want you to walk out of there knowing that the greatest baseball player of all time is Willie Mays. And I beg to differ. All right. I'm not going to charismatic, uh, flair, and he was an all-timer. Don't get me wrong. But if you're asking me, is he the greatest baseball player? And you're going to give me the five tools and all that. If you're, you know, some tools are not as important as other tools. You know, you might have the guy who's the greatest, got the greatest arm in the history of the world. If he hits 210, who cares? Right? You might have the greatest guy who runs the bases great. If he can't get on first base to seal second, who, you know, who cares? It's about hitting. That's what keeps you in the lineup. It's about hitting. 
If you don't hit, you're not going to play. Simple. I don't care how good an outfielder you are. I don't care how well you run the bases. All these great players who did those other things, catch the ball, run the bases, and throw, all hit. Because that's how they got to play. So keep that in mind. If you look at it from that perspective, I don't know how in the world you sit there and spend an hour and 40 minutes, 42 minutes, telling me that without a doubt, Willie's the greatest baseball player of all time. No, he's not. Top of my head, I can name you 15 better hitters. Top of my head. Hornsby, Cobb, Gehrig, Ruth, DiMaggio, Mantle, Williams, Musial, Aaron, Cabrera, Pujols. Top of my head. And I'm not even beginning to scratch the surface. Jimmy Fox. Top of my head. Now, you could argue that all you want. Um, I, nobody's sitting there saying that Jimmy Fox was a good was a good fielder, or Ruth, you know, a heavy set guy out and right. I understand. Garrick was a lumbering first baseman. I get it. All right, uh, Roger Hornsby's, I'm sure, was not a great second baseman. I get it. But again, what you have to do in baseball to stay on the field is hit. Is hit. And the people I just mentioned are better hitters than Willie. I don't care about the 660 home runs. He played 23 years. Be fair. DiMaggio hit 325 lifetime. Williams hit 344. 344. Garrick was like a 400 hitter in the World Series. Willie hit 230 in the World Series with one home run and 89 at bats. Now, again, if I go if I go too long here, you guys are going to call me an old grouch. That's what Tory did today. Boy, why are you so bitter? Well, you know why I'm bitter? Because that little kid ran down that elevator and hung out in that lobby for days and Willie didn't sign. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog's Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.